Welcome to another Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. I created the show with the intention of empowering others to help and love themselves. Aside from weekly skin tips, you will hear me spotlight extraordinary souls from around the world who are making a difference by helping people in their own way. Together, we can all make a difference, and it starts with love, love from the hip. Death is defined in the English dictionary as the extinction of life, the irreversible cessation of all biological functions, or ceasing to be. However, for those who believe in the afterlife and reincarnation, death is not the end, but rather the soul transmigrating into a new beginning. Even the biological phenomenon which occurs when our bodies die is not us ceasing to be, but rather our bodies gradually giving way to becoming something else. We give life to other living things as we slowly decay, the bacteria and microorganisms carrying us back into the earth. These biological processes further emphasize the natural order of life and something we don't have control over, yet it is imperative for our very existence and for the existence of every living thing. Like in the case of a caterpillar, when it changes into a butterfly, cells are programmed to die in order for this magnificent transformation to occur. Death has become an increasingly popular topic when it comes to figuring out ways to avoid it. Although this pursuit for biological immortality is as old as humanity itself, it's just the technology and theories around it that have changed. In our desire to extend our lives, we inevitably live in the future, not preparing for our deaths, nor choosing to live our present lives. It is said that to be prepared for death is to be prepared for living, and that to die well is to live well. Unfortunately, we spend more time trying to procure immortality than we do discussing death, even though we all experience it. One who is considered to have given death a voice and pioneered the modern death movement was American psychologist Herman Feifel. His publication of The Meaning of Death in 1959 laid the foundation for thanatology or the study of death and finally opened up the much-needed conversation for death, dying, and bereavement. He was surprised to find out that not much scientific literature had been written on the attitudes towards death and dying. And contrary to what other doctors had told him about never discussing death with a patient, Feifel found that patients welcomed it and even preferred it. Feifel believed doctors were avoidant toward death because they actually feared it most. Humans are the only species who are aware of the limitations to life and impending death, so it's no wonder we fear it. Thanatophobia, a word coined by Sigmund Freud, is used to describe people who express a fear of death. Freud believed this to be the result of unresolved childhood conflicts. A fear of death most often occurs after witnessing someone having a painful death, losing a loved one, or surviving a traumatic experience related to death. It also can be rooted in phobias. Whatever the reason, death anxiety is a very real thing and causes intense feelings of panic, fear, and depression, and it is said to peak in our 40s through our 60s, at a time when we feel most vulnerable. Canadian clinical psychologist Paul Wong believes there are different aspects of death which cause anxiety, like uncertainty, failure of life work completion, loneliness, violence of death, leaving loved ones, and judgment. Wong says we end up attaching biological, religious and spiritual, societal and cultural meaning to death in order to cope with it. And our death attitudes differ based on where we are at with our own life experiences and regrets. In fact, the regret theory introduced by Adrian and Grafton in 1996 shows how death makes one more anxious if they feel they have not and cannot fulfill any positive task in the life they are living. Wong says as humans we are innately designed to have meaning, which can lie dormant within us as we busy ourselves with living, and that our meaning can awaken through death and suffering. After all, we spend the most time reflecting on life and death after surviving traumatic events. Sometimes the reflection stays with us for a while and we make better choices in our lives, other times, it leaves us as suddenly as it came. Wong recommends we manage our meaning, a concept he calls meaning management, which helps us to live and die well. 
There is no doubt that death was at the forefront of all of our minds during the pandemic and that many of us experienced at least one person we knew of dying. There is also no question that our fear of death was driving our behavior, including stocking up on toilet paper, something we did to give us a sense of control during a time we felt we had none. We allowed our fears to consume us, as fears do, and focused more on the very thing we didn't want, again without actually discussing it or making preparations for it. Perhaps had we done all of those things, along with Wong's meaning management, we may have been better able to discover and create purpose in our lives, not to mention actually live our lives, and in turn, dissolve our fears around death and dying altogether. Interestingly, during his time as an aviation psychologist in the war in 1942, Feifel discovered it was the men who felt they could not die who were the most successful pilots. None of us escape a biological death, but perhaps it is our confidence in our own immortality or the knowing that our spirit lives on, which is precisely the very thing to make us successful at living. Feifel said, The democracy of death encompasses us all. Even before its actual arrival, it is an absent presence. To deny or ignore it distorts life's pattern. In gaining an awareness of death, we sharpen and intensify our awareness of life. Today on Love from the Hip, hip, it is my absolute joy to have Barbara Becker here with us. Barbara is an author, interfaith minister, and human rights activist. She will share amazing wisdom from her new book, Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind, including what she learned about facing mortality, why she chose to face it, people who helped along the way, and how it healed and changed her life and can do the same for you. You won't want to miss all that she has to share, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The passing of our loved ones always proves to be very challenging, but can be met with ease when working with someone who can hold space, compassion, and especially someone who works across the veil. Allow Sakura Sutter, multidimensional channeler and intuitive medium, to be your spiritual guide with the other side. No matter if you choose to communicate with your transitioned loved ones to help you with the grieving process, or connect with spiritual, galactic, and other light beings to explore and dive in more on your spiritual path, Sakura can assist you. Not only does Sakura channel insightful messages, but she also incorporates her metaphysical tools to help you move through blocks and unprocessed emotions and feelings, providing you with a closure, relief, and new mindset to move forward. So don't hesitate to take your first step towards healing so you can start living your life once again. Remote sessions available. Contact Sakura at sakurasutter.com. That's S-A-K-U-R-A-S-U-T-T-E-R. Peach fuzz is great if it's on a peach. Let Sakura Skin and Mind remove unsightly hair with dermaplaning. Although its primary purpose is to remove layers of dead skin, it's just one of the added benefits leaving your skin baby smooth, safe, effective, fast, and affordable. What a concept! Sakura Skin and Mind wants you to look your very best, and dermaplaning is just one tool in their chest. Find out about dermaplaning at sakuraskinandmind.com. S-A-K-U-R-A, skinandmind.com. We bring out the healthy skin and healthy way of thinking you didn't know you had. Taking care of your body's largest organ can be difficult, but not for Astera Skincare Mist. This topical skin spray supports your skin's own natural healing defenses. Astera Skincare Mist is a light misting spray, free of parabens, alcohol, toxins, and fragrance. This all-natural topical skin spray will take the woe out of your skincare worries without clogging your pores. Irritation, inflammation, redness, post-procedure sensitivities? No problem. With Astera Skincare Mist, you can continue about your day without the skin dismay. Acne, rosacea, psoriasis, sunburns, rashes, and fungus? Don't let these skin concerns inconvenience you. Instead, let Astera Skincare Mist allow you to be happy in the skin you're in. Available at Sakura Skin and Mind. Learn more at esteracare.com. That's E-S-T-H-E-R-A, care.com. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe and share my podcast, Love from the Hip. That's H-Y-P, anywhere you can find podcasts. Today, I have the pleasure of having Barbara Becker on my show. Barbara is an author, interfaith minister, and human rights activist. Thank you for joining us here today. I'm thrilled to be with you. (laughs) And where are you joining us from, Barbara? 
I am in New York City. It's on my bucket list. And I will Please look come. you up. <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> so how did you come to write your beautiful book, Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind? So Heartwood is a memoir. And I started writing it when my earliest childhood friend, whose name was Marissa, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She was just 30 years old. Mm. And during that time, Marissa did something that was so amazing to me. She actually lived her life incredibly beautifully in the face of all that was going on. So she married her college sweetheart, even knowing that she wouldn't have long to live. And she traveled to Italy, which was her family's ancestral homeland between chemo treatments. And she just, she lived with incredible presence and grace. I was blown away. And I, on the other hand, was completely anxious. Mm -hmm. you no, know, I was thinking about Marissa 24 seven. And I was worried about her death, her family, how they would go on. I started thinking about my parents, that they would die someday, and I didn't think I'd be able to handle that. So I kind of started spiraling. Hmm. And what I did was I did the thing I do whenever I'm faced with tough questions, which is that I start reading everything in sight. And I discovered that uh, wise people throughout time, from the Buddha to Henry David Thoreau, to the Stoic philosophers like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, they have all advised us that if we want to live fully like Marissa was living, um, it makes sense to live with the end in mind, to actually contemplate our mortality rather than run away from it. Hmm. So that was really my start. And that created this experiment, correct? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, when Marissa's doctors said there was nothing more they could do and that she had at most a year left to live, I started living my life as if I had a year left to live. I mean, I knew it was hypothetical, although you never know. Mm -hmm. um, and I started um, following this book called A Year to Live by Stephen Levine. And he had a lot of exercises to kind of force us to look at our mortality. I remember one of the chapters, it was such a simple experiment, but it was really something I played with a lot. He would say, okay, if you have a cold, like a common cold, before you reach for the bottle of Tylenol or whatever it is you take, sit with it for a moment and just see what it's like to be in a body that doesn't feel comfortable. Mm. Because ultimately, we don't get out of here without aches and pains and often towards the end of our life, extreme um, pain and suffering. So um, it was it was very revelatory to me. And uh, I, I really um, took on this advice of wherever I could to face death rather than run in the opposite direction. Hmm. So it got you real uncomfortable in order to be really comfortable. Yes. I mean, as the French say, you can't make an omelet without cracking an egg. And I yeah. just got really messy with this whole death thing and just talking to people and um, having conversations with my parents about their mortality. And during that time, I um, created my own advanced directive, mm -hmm. you know, who I would want to be my medical proxy. I really wow. got through the nuts and the bolts, but also the deeper like emotional and spiritual parts as well. Now, did you finish the experiment before your friend passed? Marissa actually died right before my experiment ended. Mm. And um, it was heartbreaking. On the anniversary of her um, birthday, I decided that what I wanted to do was to write something so that her husband, David, and her family would know that there were so many of us who um, would never forget Marissa. 
So I wrote up that little year to live experiment and it was published on a blog and it went viral and Mm -hmm. a publisher in New York called me and said, would you ever consider writing about this, like a book? <laughs> and um, that, that was really the start of Heartwood. Amazing. And I'm so glad you did. Now, tell us more about the title, Heartwood. So Heartwood is something that I discovered after my parents both died. Um, you know, I really, I was bereft when I lost them. And I lost them like just a couple of months apart from one another. And I love going out in nature. I find so much solace there and especially around death and dying. You know, we have like the change of the seasons and the ebb and flow of the tides and the waxing and waning of the moon. And I discovered another one and that is heartwood. And inside um, every tree that you see when you're say in an old growth forest, there is a strong pillar. It's like darker than the rest of the wood, the growth rings that grow around it. And it's the part that's most prized by woodworkers for its strength. But it turns out that heartwood is dead. Now it's inert. It's the part of the tree that no longer participates in the flow of water and nutrients, but the growth rings absolutely need it for its sturdiness and stability. And as I reflected on that, I thought, you know, we people are so much like the trees. I mean, those who we've loved and we've lost form our own heartwood. They are our core, our memories, the place that we grow around. And someday we'll be heartwood too. That's awesome. So how does one learn to live in greater harmony with death? I found that in our death-shy culture where we run all the time in the opposite direction, I mean, if we consider that people die often in hospitals or in nursing homes and uh, even illness, we try to like hide from ourselves so we don't have to face all of the difficulties around suffering. Uh, We don't really have the opportunity to contemplate death. So um, one of the things that I did was I decided to take a class And I became trained by two Zen monks in how to be with people at the very end of their lives. Mm -hmm. And they taught me a whole bunch of really important things. And one of the most important parts was that I was assigned to the hospice floor at Bellevue Hospital, which is our um, amazingly enormous and very diverse hospital, public hospital in New York City, Um, And I would go every week and sit at the bedside of patients and their families, just going from bed to bed and really just being present. Mm. I mean, that's when I really learned that our job is not to know absolutely everything, but to just show up. And at one point, one of the um, monks said to me, you know, you might think that you need to have all of the answers for the patient. Like, where am I going after I die? And will I be in pain? And you're just going to need to know absolutely everything. And he said, you would be totally wrong if you thought that, you know, if the patient is sitting there watching Jeopardy, your job is to pull up a chair and watch Jeopardy with them. <laughs> you know, right. really like that thing about, you know, 99% of life is showing up. It's really true in the case of death as well. <laughs> wow. And how did you manage your emotions at that time? Uh, it was extremely hard. Um, at first, I I really had that notion that I had to know everything. Um And then I was sort of given the gift of being with patients who helped to um, sort of calm me, I would say. They became my teachers in so many ways. 
And extraordinary things happen at the bedside that it's it's hard to account for um, mm-hmm. in in our normal like rational brain kind of way. And they actually really helped me with my emotions. Um, one day, I showed up uh, at the bedside of a woman who um, I didn't have her name. I didn't have any information. It was early in the morning before I got the printout of the patients' names, and I. I was just sitting with her, um, thinking about sort of how beautiful she was. She was non-responsive, so she wasn't opening her eyes or um, or doing anything that indicated that she knew I was there. But I've always learned that um, our hearing is the last thing to go before we die. So I, I was singing to her and talking to her. And when the nurse gave me the list of people on the floor, I went through the names and realized that I actually knew this woman. Wow. Um, it, she was somebody who worked in my husband's office. Mm. She'd even asked my husband at one point if I had any books on meditation to recommend to her. And I just couldn't believe that in this city of like over 8 million people on that very day that she would die, I was there with her. How synchronistic. I mean, how synchronistic. She was the first person on the hospice floor that I was actually with at the moment of their passing. And I believe you said in your book, the monk actually believed that to be kind of a contract between your two souls. Is is that what you believe as well? Yeah. I mean, he said, like, imagine the karma, you know, yours and hers that would bring you together at that exact moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had been a really hard day to get to the hospital. It was snowy and icy, and I had thought about not going, but something really kept compelling me to show up. So I slid up the streets, and you know, it was kind of treacherous, but I knew I had to be there for some reason. Yeah. And I do, I have to think that we are given these opportunities to be exactly where we need to be. For other people. And I hope that when my time comes, the same kind of grace will show up in my life. <laughs> I love that. And I love that even the family was able to speak with you after the fact, right? Because not a lot of families get to be there when their loved ones go. Yes, that was so amazing. They they um, called me. Um, my husband let them know that I had been there at the moment she had died. And they called me. They wanted to know if she had been in pain, if she had said anything. And I I was able to tell them truthfully that if there was such a thing as a beautiful passing, she had it. Mm. No, it was a a simple in-breath and then an out-breath and then no more. And when I think about that in big, like, cosmic terms, I think about how the first act of our lives when we're born is to just breathe in and start crying. Right. And the last act of our lives is often that out breath, that long, slow exhale, like the full circle of mm-hmm. life and death. And that's so beautiful that you were there with her for that. So now, uh, so, t- so tell me, death first came into your life through a photograph of your father's. I was hoping that you could share more about that. Yes. Um, when I was in about third grade, um, my parents were out and I did what I think a lot of kids do, which is I was kind of snooping around in their drawers and in my dad's wallet, just kind of seeing what he had in there. And I discovered, um, behind the photograph he had of my mother, there were some edges of another photograph. So I pulled it out. And what I saw was a photo of a young woman. Um, It was black and white. And she was beautiful. And I had never seen her before. And I was standing there with the wallet in my hand, with the photo in my hand. And all of a sudden, my mom came into the room. (laughs) Guilty. And... I, you know, instead of like apologizing or whatever, I was like, who is this? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and she told me that my dad had actually been married before he had met my mom. 
and that this woman, whose name was Maureen, had died tragically in a boating accident shortly after their honeymoon. Mm. And my parents were medical professionals. I think they were quite comfortable talking about death. And they sort of let me in on the details of Maureen's life slowly. And uh, I learned more about her. I learned what happened on the day that she died. And um, I would say it really set the stage for me early to to kind of think about the bigger questions around our existence. Mm -hmm. I remember I would say to my brothers, like, uh, my mind was blown. You know, I was like, do you know that someone had to actually die for us to be born? Hmm. Like if, if she hadn't died, my dad would have never met my mother and then we wouldn't exist. And like, right. you know, those, those deep questions, questions uh-huh. yeah, just were such a part of my life. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that story. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. But everyone stay tuned for the weekly skinny up next and more love from the hip. On this weekly skinny, old wives' tales have long claimed to be able to predict the sex or characteristics of a baby based on what happens to the mother while she is pregnant. For instance, it is said that a mother suffering from heartburn during pregnancy will birth a very hairy baby. This actually has proven to have a 64% accuracy rate to that. I myself can attest to this. We now know, however, that the old belief that a mother's nose becomes wider or longer when she is carrying a boy actually applies to just being pregnant, period. And it is referred to as pregnancy nose. You heard that right. It turns out that our noses become enlarged during pregnancy. While this has not been a commonly discussed phenomenon to occur during pregnancy, social media has been helping to spread the word. Recently on TikTok, women have been sharing images of their noses before and after their pregnancies, revealing the surprising changes. And back in 2018, celebrity Chrissy Teigen first shared her pregnancy nose with the world on Twitter. The reason for the change in our noses while we are pregnant is a result of the changes in our hormone levels, which encourage more blood flow to all of our mucous membranes. This increase in blood flow is meant to help the pregnancy grow, And as a result, it forces the muscles and soft bones in the nose to expand, making our noses appear plumper, larger, and even take on a different shape altogether. This also explains why women suffer from more nasal congestion and nosebleeds when they are pregnant. Pregnancy nose usually occurs in the third trimester when high blood pressure and water retention contribute to the swelling. Thankfully, these changes are only temporary. After at least four to six weeks post-delivery, the hormones should balance out completely, allowing the nose to return to normal. Doctors say while you cannot avoid pregnancy nose, you can certainly try to lessen swelling overall by lowering your salt intake and increasing your water intake while pregnant. In addition, while swelling is normal during pregnancy, a sudden increase in swelling, especially in the face, hands, and feet, can be a sign of preeclampsia, which is a condition unlike pregnancy nose, requiring immediate medical attention. Your skin is your body's largest organ. Care for it properly, starting with your face. Sakura Skin and Mind offers several clinical facial treatments to help stimulate collagen production, eliminate toxins, boost circulation, and deeply cleanse. See a new you in your mirror. Clinical facials range from $90 and up. Do your face a favor. Sakura Skin and Mind, erasing wrinkles one clinical facial at a time. Learn more, sakuraskinandmind.com. S-A-K-U. URA skinandmind.com. Welcome back to Left from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. If you're just tuning in, I have Barbara Becker here with us speaking about her new beautiful book, Heartwood The Art of Living with the End in Mind. So, Barbara, before the break, you were sharing your story about learning about your father's first wife, Maureen. Did your father find healing before he passed? My father did find healing. And I think in large part, that was because of my mother. Um, she was really willing to uh, 
let Maureen into our lives in a way that I think a lot of people aren't when when death happens. You know, my dad and Maureen were married for so short a time that they hadn't even had the luxury of an argument, Hmm. you know, and in his mind, Maureen would be forever beautiful and young. But my mom really liked to talk about her. He would, she would ask questions about her and her family back in England. And it was to the point that every Christmas, my mother paid to have someone lay a wreath on Maureen's grave. And this went on right up until my mother died. Wow. That's tremendous. What a big heart. Such a big heart. And I don't want to give it away, but the very last chapter of Heartwood (laughs) has the story of my father taking us to England to visit with Maureen's family. Um, it, It was such an extraordinary thing. And I'm sometimes blown away when I think that my mom actually agreed to this mm-hmm. because she knew that for my dad to find healing once and for all, it was a trip that was really necessary for him. And it brought healing to her, too. That's beautiful. It did. So why did you choose to become an interfaith minister? That's a great question. So I was in the process of volunteering on the hospice floor at Bellevue. And I was encountering people who had so many different belief systems around death and around end of life. I mean, we had Christianity and Judaism, we had Hinduism and Islam, we had Buddhist patients and also indigenous um, traditions as well. And, you know, just to give you an example, uh, we had a patient who I had grown really attached to. She was a young woman from New Zealand who was indigenous Maori. Mm. And she was in New York alone. She had come on an arts fellowship. And I spent so much time with her because I thought, here she is with no family. Her family's on the other side of the world. I really wanted to be with her. And one day she said to me, you know, Barbara, I'm actually not alone here. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, in my tradition, we really believe that our ancestors gather around our bedside. And I can feel their presence, she said. They're here and they're ready to take me by the hand and bring me to the other side. (laughs) And when I learned that, I thought, There is such a vast treasure trove of wisdom around spirituality and religion in this world. And I just wanted to know more. So thankfully, I live near this amazing interfaith seminary called One Spirit Interfaith Seminary based in New York. What a coincidence. I know. Right? <laughs> Go on. Our teachers were, you know, imams and priests mm. and rabbis and um, wisdom holders. And I, what an incredible blessing that becoming an interfaith minister has brought to my life. Right. And it allowed you to communicate death even better, I feel. Yeah. I feel like it allowed me to communicate with an open mind, like without judgment and how quick we are to um, have ideas about how other people are processing their emotions. And this training just allowed me to really step into their shoes, so to speak, and to see what life lessons, what big lessons like would work that would help them through this time. That's wonderful. Now, do you have any rituals that you gained from becoming an interfaith minister that you do? Well, I have been really attracted to Buddhism. Um, and, it, you know, one, one of my practices that I do every single night of my life is to say the evening gata. Mm-hmm. The evening gata is the prayer that's chanted in Zen monasteries around the globe. It doesn't matter where they are. They say the same thing. And it's all about death. And it goes, let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly by and opportunity is lost. 
on this night, the days of our lives are decreased by one. Mm. Each of us must strive to awaken. Take heed. Do not squander your life. I love that. <laughs> oh, me too. It like sends chills up my spine every time I, I hear it, say it. I mean, what a teaching. I mean, the Absolutely. teachings around Buddhism are a lot of just facing our our fragile bodies and um, what happens around the time that we die. Mm-hmm. And now this is different than the faith that you were raised with, correct? Yes, I was raised in the Christian tradition. And um, there's a lot of beauty there as well, uh, especially around rituals around death. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine's husband died quite young. Um, it, you know, he had colon cancer, and his um, his funeral was a very um, prescribed, like standing up, sitting down, saying these prayers, call and response, and. I got to see that there was so much um, beauty in that. I mean, everybody knew exactly what to do hmm. at exactly what time in the service. And there was comfort in knowing that um, our death is part of a long, continuous chain that goes on for generations. It's not the only one. We're right. part of something way bigger. And it ties us in with our ancestors. Oh, it sure does. <laughs> now, you you have had such a very unique life. You became a human rights activi- activist as well from a very young age. And you made quite the impression on a certain president's mom who you mentioned in your book. And I was hoping that you could briefly share your experience. <laughs> so um, I my very first job in New York was as an intern and I was working in the field of microfinance. Microfinance is like giving loans to women to start their own businesses as a way of pulling them and their families and their communities out of poverty. And, you know, internships can be so boring, like so much drudgery, so much Xeroxing. Of a, I don't know that we Xerox anymore, but, you know, like just a lot mundane. of just mundane tasks. But I had a boss whose name was Ann Dunham. And Ann said to me, you know, I believe in you. And I think you actually need to go into the field and you need to see how microfinance works firsthand. So she sent me to Bangladesh, which is the home of the Grameen Bank, sort of the grandfather of all of the microfinance movements. And um, I had the opportunity to live there during a very sort of tumultuous time politically in the country. And um, I was actually at great risk at one point. And I write about that in the book. A car I was traveling in was hijacked um, carjacked, you know, and um, I wasn't sure I was going to live. I mean, if I have to say I've ever had a near-death experience, that was as close to it as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I came home, I learned that Anne, who was just 52 years old, um, had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. I never saw her again. Wow. Um, and it wasn't until years later that I opened the newspaper and I saw a picture of a woman who looked just like Anne holding a little boy in her arms. And I read the caption and it said, Anne Dunham and her son, Barack Obama. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And how did you feel? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, I was blown away. It just didn't even seem like it was possible. She had talked about her son Mm -hmm. who she obviously adored and her daughter as well. Um, but I just had never registered his name and, you know, I, I could see so many traits in him, um, in her incredible intelligence and feistiness. Uh (laughs) And she made quite the impression on you. Oh, she really did. I mean, I really honor that, um, that sort of like divine feminine earthy spark that Mm -hmm. she had. So I have to ask you, did Barack Obama read your book? 
<laughs> you know, he actually did. He read it and he sent me the most beautiful holiday message thanking me for honoring his mom and for for writing all of these stories. It was so moving to me to get it. Amazing. I love that. Well, with that, we're going to have to take another break. But everyone stick around for more Love from the Hip. A health crisis is one of the most challenging situations we will experience in our lifetime. It leaves us frightened, confused, and asking, why did this happen to me? Transformational coach Rory Reich experienced his healing crisis when the life he had so carefully constructed came crumbling down around him. The universe had offered him a challenge. He chose to accept it and to rediscover who he was before it was too late. In his book, Transform Yourself Through Disease, Rory shares his personal journey alongside eight practical steps to help those who are stuck realize their self-impairing beliefs and discover ways of transforming them so they can reclaim their health and create the life of their dreams. Don't let your health crisis define you. Take the next step and transform yourself today. For a free life coaching consultation, contact Rory at RoryReich.com. That's R-O-R-Y-R-E-I-C-H dot com. If you're planning on building a home or a major landscaping project, you'll want the team of Stone Resources on your side. Safely, effectively, and correctly working with our unique terrain requires local knowledge and environmental care. For 21 years, Stone Resources has been making sure their customers' biggest investment is on solid ground. Trust your next earth-moving project to Stone Resources. Call 425-754-6792. That's 425-754-6792. Stone Resources. We make the earth move. And remember, if you need dirt or have dirt to get rid of, you can call on us. 425-754-6792. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. If you are just joining us, I have Barbara Becker here with us today, sharing wisdom from her new book, Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. And if you have anxiety around death, are still struggling with loss, or are just curious about Barbara's beautiful story, then I encourage you to grab your copy. So Barbara, you also happen to be in New York City during 9-11. Yes, um, I was walking just a few blocks from the World Trade Center that morning with my son, who was one years old, in his stroller. And he was on his way to the daycare at Trinity Church, which is just a block from the tower. And we heard this like thunderous noise. And I just, I, I couldn't figure out what had happened. I mean, there was no context for that kind of noise. But my son pointed his little finger up to the sky and he started yelling, fire, fire, mama, fire. And I looked up and I saw what I thought was debris falling from the towers, Mm. but then realized that it was actually people Mm. jumping. Mm -mm. Um, It was like one of clearly one of the most tragic things that has ever happened in our city. And it's something that took me a very long time to process. We had um, grief therapists come to my office, which was just also around the corner from the towers. And they said to us something that I find so important. They said, you know, when you're dealing with a death, you might just want to brush you know, it aside and kind of carry on. But if you don't deal with it now, it will come back at some point. And when you sort of least need it in your life, there'll be another loss or something hard that you're dealing with in your life. And before you know it, you'll be having flashbacks to that loss. And it really taught me how important it is to find some way of dealing with grief, whether that's talking to other people, having a therapist, Mm -hmm. um, joining a bereavement group, whatever makes sense for you is worth doing. Did writing your book also help you to heal from that experience? No, writing my book felt like an enormous healing ritual. And I made it a ritual. Mm -hmm. So every day that I would sit down to write, 
I would light a little candle beside my laptop. And if I had a photograph of the person I was writing about, I would include that on my desktop too, as a way of sort of calling in these friends and ancestors and and really making that time sacred rather than a chore of writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you were happened to be there in New York City again during COVID. Yes. At that point, I was an ordained interfaith minister. And I had this amazing experience of being called to do blessings um, at the burials at our potter's field Mm -hmm. um, called Heart Island. I mean, we had so many deaths in New York City that if you were to walk down the sidewalks, you would see these refrigerated trailers that were serving as morgues. And it's where they put bodies because they couldn't hold them in the hospital morgues in their basements anymore. So awful. Um, it was terrible. It was like such a dark time. And I actually lost a very dear aunt who was in some ways like a second mother to me. She died of COVID under lockdown in a nursing home. And I had to say goodbye to her by telephone. Mm. It was like one of the hardest things I have ever done in my life. Absolutely. And I think for a lot of people, just having funerals over Zoom and not being in the room with our loved ones as they passed. Yes, I mean, talk about ritual here as well. I mean, I think that we really did need to honor the dead somehow. And, you know, after my aunt died there at Lincoln Center in New York, uh, which is a big home of music here, did an amazing ritual. They had the jazz artist, Wynton Marsalis, perform a funeral dirge, um, but huh. it's very uplifting. It was New Orleans style, so it's very jazzy. And then the drum starts beating, and the names of all of these people who had died and hadn't had a chance for a funeral came up one by one. And my aunt was one of them. Aww. And it brought me to my knees, Aww. like the importance of music and of taking time to honor the dead. Right, and ceremony. Yes. So how do you think death affected us during COVID? I think death affected us in so many ways, not just the physical body and the fear that we all had. Like we didn't know anything about masks or how this was being spread. We actually didn't know if we were going to live or if we were going to die if we caught it. And that was a collective like slap in the face. Um, but it affected us in so many other ways as well. I mean, people lost jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people moved and lost homes. Um, children lost graduation. You know, my son lost his prom. I mean, these were all things that were deaths in very important ways. Mm-hmm. And they all had to be like looked at and unpacked. And I think collectively as a culture, we'll be doing this for a long time. I definitely agree with you. I think it's still going. So having studied different religions, do you believe there is life after death? I have to say that I am cautiously optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) I have seen enough people at the end of their lives talking to um, beings in the room who they can see, who I can't. Um, I am attracted to the mystery of it all. I mean, I've sort of let go of my need to absolutely know what happens after we die. And I feel like I can float in that place of just not knowing and be fine with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are way too many unusual things that have happened that I wrote about in the book that would, you know, cause me to believe that, um, you know, really something does continue. Right. At the very least, we are in each other's heartwood. <laughs> now, you had your own brush with death just after finishing this book. Can you tell us more about that and maybe what you used that you learned? <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, this was a shock to me. But on the very day that Heartwood was released, it's sort of publishing birthday, Um, I was undergoing surgery for breast cancer. You know, it was an early diagnosis, but 
Um, at that time, I didn't know how early it was. I was waiting for pathology reports and um, my mind was spinning. And one thing I really learned in the process of writing Heartwood was something I learned from my friend, Matt, who has MS. And I was kind of going on and on to him like, oh my gosh, I don't know. Like, will I live? Will I see my kids graduate from college? Will they get married? I just don't know what's going to happen. And Matt said to me, you know, Barbara, it sure sounds like you're writing chapter 24 of your life when you're only on chapter four. Mm -hmm. And with that, he brought me back into the present, which is really the biggest lesson of Heartwood and all of the stories therein. Like it's that we have to show up. We have to show up for this moment. We have to show up for these goodbyes, even if they're just to the grocery store around the corner or saying goodbye to someone on their way off to work or to school really to just be there. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Well, can you share with my listeners how they can learn more about you or follow you and also grab a copy of your book? Yes. So Heartwood is truly available wherever books are sold. I love indie bookstores. Um, So if you have the chance to grab one there, that's great. There's a reader's guide on my website, barbarabecker.com. And there's also uh, all my social media handles and um, some resources that might be useful for readers and listeners. Awesome. And now I have to close with a question. Has facing mortality helped you to find greater purpose in your life? This process of thinking about death has changed me completely and profoundly. Um, I feel like my priorities are in order. I know it's important. And um, I just want to live, you know, Mm -hmm. give it everything I've got and be joyful in the process as well. It's so beautiful. Well, thank you again for being here today. You are truly an earth angel. Thank you so much. It's such an (laughs) honor to be with you. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you to Eric, my lovely producer, you the listener, KKNW, Timber Country, and Cape Town Zone Radio. You can find me at sakurasutter.com. Tune in next week for another Love from the Hip presents the Conscious Coaching Hour. And remember, stay kind out there, stay true to you, and don't forget, make self-love contagious. Go ahead. I dare you.